As uh, uh, Ms. Michelle mentioned earlier, uh, again, coming up, hard to believe, uh, indeed, that just two weeks from now is Friendsgiving, and uh, I hope that you have been praying about who you're going to invite uh, to come and, and share uh, that special day with us. Uh, it's going to be an incredible meal together, incredible time of fellowship together. Uh, so again, I hope that you are already making your plans. You can uh, sign up online. Uh, you can sign up at the Church Center app. Um, uh, you can go out in the lobby and sign up. You can call the church and sign up. A variety of ways to do that. Well, if you would, uh, keep your Bibles handy. We'll be looking at, at actually several places in God's Word this morning. And um, speaking of God's Word, <clears throat> when you read the Bible, uh, and especially when you decide you're going to study the Bible, uh, one of the things that is so key, that, that's so very important in order to know how best to apply it in your own personal life, is to understand the, the context of what it is that you're reading, uh, the historical context. Uh, you, you know, there, there is not a, every single one of the books in the New Testament, every single one of the Bible books in the New Testament uh, was written with a specific purpose in mind to a specific target audience as well. For instance, the Gospel of Matthew, in which we find the Beatitudes, uh, Matthew wrote for a, primarily a Jewish audience. He wrote with a purpose in mind of trying to convince the Jews that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Uh, it's also important not only to see the historical context, but also to see the, the context within the books themselves as well. In other words, the, the context of the events that take place. For instance, the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, well, for instance, in, in, when we come to the, the Sermon on the Mount, who was it that was in the crowd that day? That, that was scattered all over the mountainside when Jesus sat down and preached, the, again, that most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Who was in the crowd? Now, remember, when, when the books of the Bible were written, they were not written with chapters and verses. <laughs> Those were added much, much later in order to, to be able to have reference points. So it all, again, in fact, some, there, there is some kind of Bible that's out there that, that takes all those out that's kind of fun to, to read. But again, remember that. So it, it's at the end of Matthew 4, chapter 4, Sermon on the Mount begins chapter 5, the end of chapter 4 in which Matthew describes what that crowd looked like that day. Matthew 4, 23 to 25, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, that is who was in the crowd that day. I mean, this was not the upper crust of Jerusalem who came out to hear Jesus preach, not by any means. These were the hurting and the helpless. And then as chapter 5 begins, we read now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. A while back, a friend of mine here in town, not a member of our church, invited me to a special event that he described as an opportunity to hear about the latest sales sensation. 
I, uh, I was, I was kind of curious about that, and, and out of my respect for him, I, I accepted the, the invitation to go, and, and, and as you can probably guess, it was one of those uh, get-rich-quick pyramid schemes that's developed around a, a, a legitimate project, I, I mean, a product. I don't even remember what the product was. In fact, as, if I recall, it, it wasn't even fully developed at that point. Now, the pyramid was developed, but not the, not the, not the, not the product itself. But, I mean, it was like, it was like a, a one-hour Pentecostal revival meeting. I, I, I'd never witnessed such a thing before. It, the hotel ballroom was packed. Uh, the featured preacher, uh, the presenter, uh, was at the top of the pyramid. <laughs> and, and he went on to explain that, you know, before he found out about this stuff, that he was practically in the poorhouse. But now, after working the plan, he had it made in the shade. And, of course, he said, if you will also work the program, you will have it made in the shade. I mean, grown men and women all ages were whooping and hollering like it was a bedlam game, and their team was winning. It was, it was amazing. And, and, again, he was trying to convince them. He promised everyone in the audience, if you will do this, again, you too We'll be able to have all this money and own all this stuff, just like I have all this money and own all this stuff. You, too, will be able to have it. You will truly know you will have that kind of life. Now, obviously, that was the kind of life that all these people hooping and hollering in the room were excited about. Well, when Jesus preached on the mountainside that day, the promises that he made to the people actually had a similar ring but just in one regard, only one regard. He said, if you do this, you will be blessed. You may remember from our, our very first uh, lesson on the Beatitudes, very first sermon on the Beatitudes, that word blessed means many happinesses. And actually, that word that he uses for blessed was used in secular literature at the time, referring to the good life, the good life specifically in the secular literature that was, they imagined being experienced by the Greco-Roman gods. So what Jesus is saying is that he is promising them the true good life. But Jesus' take, his take, on what constituted the good life is not the prevailing view today, as, as was evidenced by all those folks whooping and hollering in the ballroom that day. And it was not the prevailing view in that day either. See, Jesus said the really good life belongs not to the rich, but to the poor, the poor in spirit. Not to those who are carefree and happy-go-lucky, but to those who mourn. Not to those who are overbearing and brash, but to the meek. Not to those who are full, but to the hungry. See, that's the upside-down world of the good life in God's kingdom. Remember when we began this, I said, get used to standing on your head because that's what it's going to feel like as we go through this, like we're standing up our head. He turned the world upside down. Well, I don't know if there was any hooping and hollering going on on the mountainside on that day, but there must have been a lot of astonished encouragement. I mean, for the first time in their lives, these people who thought they could never be blessed are being told that they can indeed be blessed, that they can experience the good life. They found hope. 
And guess what? There is hope for us as well. The fifth beatitude, Jesus said, Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Oh, what, what exactly is mercy? Yeah, mercy is at the very heart of who God is. You know, throughout Scripture, I mean, hundreds, hundreds of times, different people describe God as a, as a merciful God, as a God of mercy. But God himself also describes himself in that way as well. In fact, there's a specific fourfold description that God gives of himself. That's repeated some seven different times in Scripture. But it's first spoken by God right after Moses has led the people of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. You remember this. Out of their slavery in Egypt. They finally arrive at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai in order to receive from God the laws for the people, which included the Ten Commandments, which God himself wrote upon two stone tablets. Well, Moses, this was taking way, way longer than what the people thought that it should. And so they, they finally decided he must have just died up there. I mean, when they looked up and they saw the, was, was the Shekinah glory of God at the top of that mountain, which was so powerful and so awesome, they just decided, you know, nobody could be up there and be living through all that. And so they decided Moses has died. And so they turned to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, build us a golden calf that we can worship that. Aaron gave in and he did. Not long after that, Moses, who is still very much alive, (laughs) comes down the mountain. He sees what has taken place, and he, in a rage, in a rage, he takes the two stone tablets, and he throws them down and breaks them at the bottom of the mountain. Well, eventually, after a few come-to-Jesus moments, God invites Moses back up on the mountain to receive a new set of tablets. And when Moses gets to the top, God descends in a cloud, and then he reveals himself to Moses in this way. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. On another occasion, that same description is repeated by the prophet Jonah. You remember Jonah? God called Jonah to go and and preach to the city of Nineveh. Now, Jonah, you may remember, didn't want to have anything to do with that pagan city. And he initially tried to run away from God, but God gave him a first-class ticket to Nineveh Beach inside the belly of a big fish. You remember that? So very reluctantly, Jonah did preach. He did preach. And all the while, he was hoping to have a front-row seat to watch God destroy this city. In fact, he goes outside the city up on the side of a hill, and he's just sitting there watching, waiting for all this to happen. However... Much to his surprise and his great disappointment, Nineveh repents. They repent. And Jonah was ticked. I mean, there's a huge revival that takes place. But Jonah gets angry at God for not bringing judgment on the city. And a part of what he says to God in his anger was this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. 
And he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. That's why I ran away, God, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I mean, can you imagine being mad at God about that? (laughs) That's where he is. When the Israelites, when the Israelites turned away from God in such an evil way at Mount Sinai, they deserved justice. They deserved to be eliminated. But they didn't get justice, did they? They got mercy. Mercy. The Ninevites, who, I mean, the extent of the evil of that city had been that way for so, so long, they deserved Judgment. They deserved justice. But they didn't get justice. They got mercy. Mercy. And friends, when Jesus saved me, I didn't get justice. I got mercy. Mercy. And every day when I, when I continue to do things that, that are wrong against God, I still don't get justice. He always gives me mercy, just as he does for you. Our God is a merciful and gracious God. And in fact, those two words, mercy and grace, are, are, are very, very similar, just about interchangeable, but, but there's just a slight difference in the meaning of the two of them. It, they've been defined like this. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve, whereas grace is getting what I don't deserve. On one of the many occasions when the Apostle Paul writes about what God has done for him, 1 Timothy 1.13, he writes, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. Paul is saying, I received mercy. I did not receive what I deserved. I got mercy instead. But let's... Let's take a moment to make sure that we we fully understand what mercy is. Because sometimes we mistakenly think of it as just a willingness on God's part to overlook a wrong, to overlook something we've done wrong. Well, not long ago, I was leaving the office to head home at the end of the day, and I I was hoping, 56th place out here, I was hoping to to go out 56th place, make a right turn on Lewis, and to get through that light before all the traffic, which was very stacked up at that that time of day, before all the traffic took off. And so uh, I I did uh, that uh, kind of a rolling stop right there, (laughs) and I was only about halfway through the turn when the light did change, and out of the corner of my eye, I noticed that there was also a police car sitting in the inside lane on Lewis. Lewis, also waiting for the light to change so that he could head the same direction down Lewis. So I kind of held my breath there for a moment, and but sure enough, the, his lights came on behind me, and he pulled me over, and you know, stopped in the little London Square parking lot down there. And, and um, uh, but and as he started going the routine, asked for my driver's license, that sort of thing, he said nothing about my rolling stop. And so I asked him the question. I said, "Well, well officer, um, so what did I do?" He said, well, sir, did you not know that your license tag has expired? I said, well, no, sir, I, I didn't. I said, I, I thought I could remember even being in the, in the tag agency sometime in the last six months. 
Anybody else lose track of time during COVID? <laughs> he said, nope, nope, it's expired 18 months ago. <laughs> 18 months ago. <laughs> well, it, it, at that point, I, I, I was tempted to pull out the pastor card. <laughs> You know, and, and, and tell them how much our church, which is just right over there, uh, how, how much we appreciate the police and the great work that they do, and, and uh, in hopes that maybe he was just a sympathetic Christian or, 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 or maybe, maybe feeling guilty about not going to church much lately, and, and he, he would just let me off to make him feel, himself feel better. You know, anything that would motivate him to have mercy and only give me a warning ticket. But a warning ticket is not overlooking what was done wrong, is it? A warning ticket, that, you know, that pink slip or whatever color it is that they, they give you, reminds us that we did do something wrong and deserved a ticket because of that, because we broke the law. You see, mercy actually exists because of justice. By the way, in that instance, I did not get mercy, I got justice. <laughs> When God gives us mercy, he is, whew. He is not overlooking what we have done wrong. Not by a long shot. See, God is holy and just, and he cannot overlook our sin without denying his very character. So that's why he gave us his son, Jesus, to die for us, to die in our place, to pay the penalty of our sins. You see, Christ's death on the cross satisfied the need for justice. That's why God, in great kindness and mercy, does not give us what we truly deserve, but gives us mercy instead. The Bible describes God as being rich in mercy. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Verse 4, but God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God is rich in mercy. Aren't you glad? <laughs> Aren't you glad? Don't you love that God does not give us what we deserve? Well, I need to stop and ask you a hard question. How do you respond when others do you wrong? How do you respond? I, for one, am, am not very quick to mercy, I'm afraid to say, it in most instances. Remember the old ditty? To dwell there above with those we love, that will be glory. To live here below with those we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> I 
The amazing fact that we have been blessed to receive God's tender mercy in our lives should have a profound effect upon our willingness to show mercy to others. Plain and simple. Luke 6, 36, Jesus said, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. You remember Jesus said a similar kind of thing to his disciples when he was, he was talking to them about love. It happened on the night before Jesus was crucified as they were just about to leave the upper room before they, just after they shared the, Lord's, the Last Supper together. And one of his final things, one of the final things that he taught them was this. John 13, 34 and 35. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now, love one another was not a new command. It was a very, very old command. So what was new about what Jesus was saying here? What was new is that Jesus was doing what? He was giving them a new standard by which they were to love one another. He said, what, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. We are to love others in the same way that Christ has loved us. Well, it's the same with mercy. The same. We are to be merciful to others according to the same standard by which God has been merciful to us. So what does it mean, then, to be merciful to others? William Barclay defines it like this. He writes that mercy is the ability to get right into the right. Excuse me, is the ability to get right into the other person's skin until we can see with his eyes, think with his mind, and feel with his heart. Well, let me ask you, who was the epitome of that? <laughs> it was Jesus, was it not? John 1:14. So the Word became human and made His home among us. God became a human being. He jumped right into our human skin, saw with our human eyes, felt with his human heart, thought with his human mind. That's why the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus like this in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy. And we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. Now, Barclay's definition is, is great, but, but it's actually not complete. Because Jesus demonstrated for us that mercy is something that goes far beyond just empathy and feelings, empathy and, and emotions. When Jesus entered our world, he didn't just see and think and feel, he acted. He acted. One of many examples from Matthew 15, verse 32. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. Now, that word, for, that word compassion there is actually another good synonym for the word mercy. Very good synonym for that. And whenever that word is specifically, particularly is used of Jesus Christ, it is always an occasion for a turning point in either someone or someone's life, just as it was in this situation. In this context, he had compassion on all those hungry people, the hungry crowds who had been listening to him teach for three days without anything to eat. 
but his compassion didn't just consist of feeling sorry for them. No. What did he do? His compassion also consisted of performing a miracle of feeding them. Thousands of them. Again, mercy doesn't just feel, it takes action. Uh, one of the most famous stories Jesus told, he told it to actually illustrate this, Luke chapter 10. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, one of the religious leaders, upon being told by Jesus to love God and love his neighbor, asked Jesus the question, uh, so who is my neighbor? You see, in, in this man's mind and heart, he, he had two lists, two distinct lists. It, list number one contained all of those he thought deserved mercy, those who, who were his neighbors. And then list number two were those that he had decidedly determined were not his neighbors and did not deserve mercy. <laughs> well, Jesus answered the man's question with this amazing story. Beginning in verse 30. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, a Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion on him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, <clears throat> take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who, attacked, who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, to his credit, the man who showed him, what? Mercy. Mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, yes. Now go and do the same. So how did the Samaritan show mercy? First of all, with it, he showed the mercy as a tender heart. Verse 33, again, he felt compassion for him. But again, second, he showed that, that a compassionate heart is always going to give rise to action, always going to give rise to merciful action. Verse 34, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them, and then he took them to the end to take care of them, and so on and so forth. You know, last week we we saw that the, the point of the Christian life is so that the, the character of Jesus may be reproduced in the lives of his people. And part of what that means is a community of brothers and sisters in Christ who are merciful, who have compassionate hearts, and who act for the good of others. Uh, that is central to our calling in life. Micah chapter 6, 8 says, What does God require of us? That we are to act justly and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. 
Do you hear the Beatitudes contained in that? To act justly, the hunger and thirst for righteousness, to love mercy, blessed are the merciful, to walk humbly with your God, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. A person who loves mercy is going to be slow to judge and quick to give others the benefit of the doubt. Because again, merciful people are very much in tune with the fact that they have received mercy from Christ. John 1.16, from his abundance, Christ's abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing, wave after wave of his grace, one gracious blessing after another. People who love mercy are willing to make sacrifices. Again, the Good Samaritan is such a tremendous example of that. But we are willing to be inconvenienced in order to show mercy to others. Again, the Good Samaritan sacrificed his time and his money to help that injured man. It's so easy for us to to pass, just like the priest and the Levite passed the, the, the wounded man by. It's so easy for us to pass on opportunities to be merciful simply because it just does not fit into our schedules, much less into our budgets. Mercy. Champions the poor, the exploited, the forgotten, and takes action on their behalf. Boy, what, what, a, what a, a privilege, what a, a blessing it is to, to be a, a part of a church um, out of which have spawned such wonderful ministries and, and missions of mercy. Not only ministries and missions that have been spawned, but so many of our people that, that help support missions and ministries of mercy outside our walls whether that's the Pearl House or Defending Dignity or Little Loves or The Spring, formerly known as Day Spring Villa or Inside Out Reentry Services, our help to the Afghan refugees, the Thanksgiving bags that we're about to present to families at Marshall and McClure Elementaries, ministries and missions of mercy, taking action on the behalf of the poor, the exploited, the forgotten. Mercy is also quick to forgive. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate, that is merciful to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Uh, The only reason we would ever be slow to mercifully forgive someone is only because we have forgotten, somehow forgotten how merciful God has has, has been to us, the fact that God has forgiven us of so much. Only reason. We should never, as we've said so many times, we should never withhold from anyone what God has so mercifully and freely given to us. Finally, again, what was Jesus' promise to the merciful? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God will, con- will show and will continue to show us mercy. So let's kind of drill down to, to where we are this morning. Ask yourself the question, is there someone in your life, someone in your life right now who, who, who needs mercy? Are there some ones within the circles of influence of your life who need mercy? Just as what we said about righteousness last week, Friends, we cannot be selfish with mercy either. 
Our, our world is desperate for mercy. We are living in a merciless world. And even though our world will never admit it, the world is crying out for mercy, but simply has no idea where to find it, where it comes from. But friends, we do, we do, we must, we must share it. We must show mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we um, are easily overwhelmed when we stop to really consider your mercy toward us, personally and individually. We thank you. So Lord, we ask that as we allow your spirit to examine our hearts this morning and to reveal to us, those in our personal lives and those within the circles of the influence of our lives, who are truly in need of mercy today, that you would help us to, to be willing with compassionate hearts to take action, to be inconvenienced in our schedules, to be inconvenienced with our budgets, to make a merciful difference in people's lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.